For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, The Spirit of the Lord is Upon Me. Mr. Steele. <clears throat> the delay just then, I have to share it because it's funny. Brian didn't put the word me in the end. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon Matthew Steele. So, obviously, I, uh, I do not live where I grew up. How many of you do not live currently where you, you, know, where you grew up as a, as a kid? Wow, it's actually quite a lot. Have you ever been back? It's weird, isn't it? When you've been away from that home that you grew up in, especially if you really have been away for many, many years, it's, it's kind of strange, isn't it? it it's, it's like things are the same, but a little different. And, and you can start to look around and look at the things that are different. And, and then you start to have memories about the, the antics you got up to when you were a kid in those places. And, the fun you had, the people that you remember, and so on. But it's really interesting that, what is that old phrase? You can never go home again, right? Because the home of our memory, certainly is our, our childhood memory, is it's in the past. We can't recreate that. We can't go back to that. And it's almost as though in our mind we feel like we should be able to go back there and it be exactly the way it was but the trees are bigger, or maybe a tree has fallen and it's not there anymore, or maybe the neighbors have painted their house a different color. This is wrong. I thought about showing a picture when I took uh, my boys back to the house that I mostly grew up in, in in an area called Babington, just outside of Liverpool. And the house is the wrong color. I felt like going up and saying, you did this wrong, can you put it back, please? Because it's now like a white, creamy white color, and it used to be this speckled gray color. It probably looks better now than it did. So we, we can't really go home again. And yet, there's something about that desire to go home. And that's where I want to start uh, the message today, because after Jesus had endured 40 days of temptation by the devil, by Satan. Forty days of temptation, of which we read the last few temptations, right? We don't, we don't have the whole thing uh, recorded for us, and we, we read the, the last few. After all of that, after he had defeated Satan in his temptation, and all the things that he was trying to get Jesus to do, Jesus sent him packing. He beat him, right? And where did he go he went back home. Now, I don't know how long he had been away from Nazareth, but either way, he went back home. And it's really an interesting place to start. And I say start because <clears throat> in lots of ways, this is where his ministry started. So in Luke chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, Jesus returned in the power <clears throat> excuse me, of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught, uh, he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. 
So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he, sent, he went rather to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So he was very deliberate about it. Now, did he ask for the book of the prophet Isaiah? I don't know, but he was handed that book. And then once in that book, he specifically found this place. It wasn't an accident. And it said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, it says, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not, is this not the, the young man that we knew as a little boy? Is this not Joseph's son? And you know, when you, like I said before, you look at this scripture as a starting place of Jesus' ministry. It was, as he showed, an announcement at this moment of what he was about to do. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, driving him, anointing him to preach the good news. And this may well be the first presentation of this term, good news. The gospel, the good news. To heal, to proclaim liberty and freedom. And where else? Where else would you start your ministry? It's not exactly a good comparison because we don't really... And neither should we look at our politicians this way. But many a politician, right, will start their, their campaign in their hometown or, or, you know, or the place that they, they live. This is where Jesus chose to start his ministry in a, in a certain sense. Because surely, if anyone is going to be friendly towards Jesus, it's going to be the people that knew him from from knee-high to a grasshopper, right? They, they knew him. It'd be in his hometown. But unfortunately not. As we read later, this is not the case. In fact, the men and women of his hometown, some of whom saw him grow up, saw him running around with all the other kids, maybe even had him in their homes as they shared Sabbath meals together with friends and family as people do, don't they? This Jesus may have been in their homes as a boy, shared those Sabbath meals, or maybe even played with their children. These same men and women would drag him out of the synagogue. They would drag him down the street 
and to the edge of the cliff of where the town was built and wanted to throw this person, this man that they knew from a young child, off the cliff. What? What in the world is going on? Why would they do this? What could possibly make them so angry? Well, we can only really speculate, can't we, as to why Jesus did this. Because he did do something that made them angry. And he was deliberate in it. Was he looking in their hearts and their minds and seeing what they were thinking? As, he, as we've seen in, in other places throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus do that when he's talking with the scribes and Pharisees. I don't know. It doesn't really say. But it does say. It does tell us what Jesus said to them. <clears throat> this was what made them so angry. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 23, he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. So, whatever Jesus is going to do, the ministry that he is going to follow, do also in your own country. Go back to your own country. Don't bring that here. Go back to where you grew up and, and tell them, in a sense. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Were they thinking this? Was it not so much a, a wonder in their minds that, wow, this eloquent young man is, wasn't this just Jesus that we saw as a kid? Maybe it wasn't a positive view that they had. Maybe it was more a case of, who does this Jesus think he is? I don't know. But he says, but I tell you truly, many widows <clears throat> were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to, uh, how do we say that? Zarephath? Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill, which their city was built, that they may throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went away. Just see this turmoil, can't you? He's saying these things, and they get so angry, they grab him and just drag him out of there, and there's yelling, there's probably stuff getting thrown, right? Because all of these people are so hate-filled and angry at what he has just said. And what have he really done to them? He didn't throw anything at them. Right? He didn't inflict physical damage on them. What had he really done to deserve this? I mean, you know, they could have just laughed at him. <laughs> I always knew that Jesus was going to end up crazy. Right? They could have done that. They could have just dismissed him. 
They could have just tossed them out of the synagogue. Don't you come back here again. No, they felt like they had to kill him. Why was that? This young man that they had known as a boy. What were they so angry about? Well, we're going to look at this because it's really interesting. Because what, what Jesus was saying here is that they were all just like the people of Israel back in the days of Elijah. Corrupt. Not following God. Without faith. So much so that they didn't even recognize who was standing in front of them today. They didn't recognize him. Even though he had just told them out of the scriptures. This is a scripture that points to the Messiah. He just told them who he was. And they didn't see him. They saw the boy that they had watched grow up. Instead of someone that was greater than Elijah. Greater than Isaiah. Moses. Abraham. Greater than them all. And they wanted to kill him. But more than this, Jesus' words cut them to their heart. The two events that Jesus was referring to were, as he said, in the life of Elijah and Elisha. And it shows this complete lack of faithfulness on the part of the people. Something we're familiar with in the world today, aren't we? Something that looks very similar to us as we look at this country, as many countries around the world. The lack of faithfulness on the part of Israel. <clears throat> and he was saying, you guys here in Nazareth are just like them. So let's take a deeper look at that. <clears throat> a look at why Jesus was drawing this comparison between the two. If you turn back to 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. We find Elijah, a Tishbite, of the inhabitants of Gilead. And I always remember Mr. Rondart talking about this, this scene. and He would paint a really fun picture of, of Elijah just walking into the, the palace. And nobody's stopping him. And he just walks up to the king. And what does he say? As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand there shall not be dew nor rain these three years except at my word. And he turns around and he walks out. That's it. And what did they say? What did they have to say? It's like, well, that was weird. Okay, uh, what's next on the agenda? Was he dismissed or was he scared? Did he really think this was going to happen? But as time went on, he realized it was really happening. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Kidrith, or Chedrith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens uh, brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been 
no rain in the land. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that he is also affected by the very thing that he delivered to the king. But he is also affected by this drought. The brook dries up. And so the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he had come to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And, she called, and he called to her and said, Please bring me a little cup, a uh, little water in a cup that I may drink. And she was going uh, to get it, and he called and said to her, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as, as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So the widow that Elijah went to stay with for three and a half years of this drought, that God was bringing this three and a half year judgment on the land, this widow was not even Israelite. She actually lived in the area of Zidon. And she clearly recognized, you can see in the scripture there, as the Lord your God lives. But it's the Lord your God. She didn't say the Lord our God. And that's also interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost a lack of, well, I'm respecting that you have your God. We know the God of the Israelites. And as your God lives, I can't do this. So she wasn't of Israel. She was not of the tribes of Israel. She was a foreigner. She was a heathen, as we might say in the old English. She was a heathen. But yet, she believed Elijah. She believed him. And I love the symmetry between this event and another event that happened a little bit later in Jesus' ministry. Because there's a further connection here in this scripture, in this passage. Did you notice how Elijah first addressed this woman that was gathering sticks? What did he ask her for? A cup of water. So if you turn to John chapter 4 and verse 5, it says that Jesus came to the city of Samaria, which is called Shar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking me for a drink? A Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and, and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, who says to you, give me to drink, you would, have had, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Both narratives, right? Both engagements start with the asking for water. And then there's a further connection, of course, too, because why was Elijah over here talking to this widow woman near Sidon? Why was he asking her? there was no water in the land. That's why he was there, wasn't it? And how long was there no water there? Three and a half years. And generally speaking, most uh, scholars accept that Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. And so we have this contrasting situation where there's a, a removal of water from the land. And then now when Jesus comes into the land, into his ministry. He is the fountain of that living water. I find that interesting. And the woman said to, her, uh, said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where, <laughs> where, do, where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Yes, he is greater, isn't he? He could have just said, actually, I remember when Jacob dug this well. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, and I don't have to come out here and draw water anymore. Sounds, sounds good to me. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, I know. She said, Well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you... Uh, whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. How many different chills would go down your spine if this stranger that you had never met ever before told you that amount of detail about your life? It's going to get your attention, isn't it? A powerful moment in her life. So then the woman said, so, um, I imagine stumbling probably, uh, uh, Sir, um, uh, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, 
the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. This is incredible. You know, we read this and we've read this story over and over again, but this happened, and this happened in the life of this woman who was nobody, right? She was a nobody from a nobody bunch of people, from, from, from the worst kind of people from, from the Jews' perspective, right? They weren't even, they were worse than just foreigners. They kind of came in and messed up this faith of ours and tried to claim our fathers as theirs. And who dare, how dare they? She was a woman, considered lower in, in the community in those days. She was of a race of people that were considered by the Jews inferior. A corrupt mixture of Assyrian and Israelite culture and faith. Just a mess. And even lower, even lower than the widow that Elijah stayed with, she was an adulterous woman, a sinner. You could argue from a human perspective, from what the, the world at that time looked at, the lowest of the lowest. And yet, the Messiah revealed to her, in the most explicit terms, more than he had anybody else up until this moment, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And that is just incredible, isn't it? The grace and mercy of God. She was exactly the kind of person that he was sent to save. Exactly. As he would say later, you know, the, the healthy, they don't need a physician, do they? The sick need the physician. So what are we to make of this? What's, what's this takeaway from these two stories and these amazing interactions and these these miracles that surround it too. What is the takeaway? Well, first and foremost, I think we can say that the ministry of Jesus Christ is not limited to one set of people, is it? A, spe a special set of people. And, you know, lots of people will say, well, you know, wait a second, God did call Israel. You know, he did make this special people for himself. But what was the purpose of that? It was to show the world how to live. That really didn't work out very well, did it? Because we can see in the story of Elijah, this Israel was not very good at showing the world the way that God wanted 
a world that was fruitful and beneficial to them. The ministry of Jesus Christ is not limited to one set of people, one nation, all one tribe. And I would say that he does not accept anything other than this. There is one race on the earth. And that is so powerful right now, isn't it? In the world in which we live. You know, Jesus said this, he said, but the hour is coming and now is. It's actually here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. All people, regardless of our background, regardless of any difference in our physiology, are called to worship God are called to be his children. No longer will the worship of God be the possession of one people, the gatekeepers, deciding who and who cannot come to God. And you know, this isn't just a thing that Israel did. We've seen it throughout even Christian tradition, right? When people would try to go to church, try to go to church, and albeit it's on Sunday, but you know, this is the church, this is the Catholic church, or the Church of England. And all the services were done in a language that nobody understood. We're the gatekeepers. It's us that decide whether or not you go to heaven. In their terminology. This isn't new. This faith, this salvation, this spirit of the Lord is going to be for everyone. Of all tribes, all and as I mentioned before, we're all watching the world today. And as Sean mentioned earlier, this world is getting crazier and crazier. And it's, it's like somebody's put grease on the tracks because it's getting faster and faster. You think about it. After all the advancements in civil rights, after all the laws, all the events, all the marches, all the speeches... All the amazing moments in, in American history and world history to advance civil rights for all people. We still haven't got to a place that God told us in the very beginning. That we are one race. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a twisted irony, isn't it? That there's this term, racism. We are one race. No matter where we come from or the color of our skin. And this is the message from the beginning. God created Adam and he created Eve. And that's it. That's where we come from. We are of the same family. That Jesus died to save each and every one of us and bring us all into the kingdom of God. You know, when, when we think about being in the kingdom of God, there is no fear of color, is there? There's no fear of racism. There's no fear of division amongst people of different cultures. And it's the plan of God for this whole world to be his kingdom with real justice, real peace, no more discrimination on anyone's part. 
No more pain. You know, I don't, I don't know how to fix these problems. I'm not smart enough. You know, we could go down the road of, oh, well, let's change this law and let's do that. And I, I understand the desire to do that. I'm not smart enough to figure out the magic answer. And the real problem is that our politicians and our leaders aren't either, are they? That they think they are. And it's maybe not that hard. Maybe it is uh, down to, uh, Reg, would you agree, that Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, right? They, of course, oversimplified it. But maybe it is, in some ways, that simple. So do we throw up our hands? Do we say, well, we can't fix it, so we don't do anything? We have no place in this. We just kind of watch. Um, maybe we sigh and we pray and we, we, we ask God, how long, O oh Lord? Faithful and true, right? Please come back. Can you skip all the prophecy stuff and get to the good stuff? That's the desire of our heart, isn't it? But can we do more than that, though? Can we do more than that without having the answers, without being a politician and trying to solve these things with man-made laws. Can we do something different? Can we take what Jesus was trying to say to us and to the people of Nazareth and, and learn from that? You know, when Jesus referred to Elijah and, and the widow that he stayed with, what was his point? What was he trying to say? Well, as I said before, he was saying there wasn't anybody of faith. There wasn't anybody that God could trust with his prophet in Israel. He had to send him out of the country. Right? Had to send him to a heathen place. There was no widow in Israel that would have sheltered him or hid him from the king. Right? Because the king was looking for him. All right, that crazy guy that came in was right, and we need rain. Where is he? But the widows of Israel were without faith. They were faithless, along with all the other people. And so instead, God sent Elijah to a foreigner, to a people of a different race, a different country. And she was blessed because of her faith. She was blessed because of her obedience. And in fact, after God raises her son from the dead, through Elijah, she also becomes a believer. Do you, have you ever noticed that in the story? Let's take a look. In, in 1 Kings 17 and verse 17, it says, Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. And so Elijah said, so she said rather to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to my remembrance and kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. 
So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have, I, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself uh, on the, the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And then the woman said to Elijah, Now, by this, I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. She was convicted of where the truth was, of who the Lord was, that he is a man of God. Apparently the miracle of the oil and the flour wasn't quite enough. But she got there. Now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth People of Nazareth understood what Jesus was saying. When they heard him citing these two stories, they understood what he was saying. But they were like the people of Israel about 900 years before. The people of Israel that had long since been taken into captivity and died and living in places that nobody knew. They understood that he was saying you are just like all of these faithless Israelites. Part of me wants to ask, why did you, why did you do that? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of poking at them a little bit. Why did you do that? It was harsh criticism. And yet, it's interesting, isn't it? How they chose to react to that criticism proved his point. It was evidence that he was right. Had they been humble? Could they have responded humbly and said, Teacher, what do you mean? We don't feel like we're like those folks. They weren't humble, were they? They didn't have that humility. Had they been willing to listen, maybe Jesus would have said, this is what I mean. And this is who I am. But they didn't ask that. That was not the case. But in contrast, if we go back to the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, you see a very different reaction. A very different reaction than from Jesus' hometown. Jesus has gone to this place where there are foreigners, just like Elijah went to this place where there were foreigners who didn't accept God in that way. And then many accepted Jesus, believed him. And who knows? Some of them could have become his disciples, following around after him. But they were, in fact, 
one of the first communities of people in a large group to accept that he was the Messiah. And they were not even God's chosen people. The contrast between his hometown and the people of the, the, that Samaritan town. But what does all of this have to do with us? Well, it's a bit of a warning, isn't it? It's a warning of what we can expect if we continue to do the work of Jesus Christ. A warning if we continue in his faith and, and following him. You remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission? In Matthew 28, verse 18, he said, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then later again, his last words on the earth, right, as he is about to ascend into the heavens, he says, and being assembled together with them, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the, the Father, which he said, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, this is not for you to know the, the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. You shall receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These are essentially the summation of the, the calling, the great commission to preach what? The gospel. The good news. The thing that Jesus started with in Nazareth when he was reading from Isaiah. The good news. And that becomes a term that grows in the church. You know, we read it all over the place. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Writing to a Greek world, but he could have easily have said, for everyone else. To the Gentiles, to the world. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And why would they call it the gospel? Because it's the word that Jesus used. They had been around him and understood that this was the mission. The good news. Because it was the same ministry that Jesus announced all the way back in Nazareth. When he had read from Isaiah 61. Verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison 
to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Of course, he, he stopped there. But it continues in Isaiah, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, he may be glorified. This is the good news, isn't it? All the way back in Isaiah, the gospel, that the spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus because the Lord had anointed him to preach the good tidings, the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound. Do we have this same ministry? Would we put ourselves in this scripture? Is this a ministry of the church right here? I say it is. Because the same spirit that was on Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's the same spirit that lives in us, isn't it? It's his spirit. It's the spirit of the Father. And what did he say in the Great Commission? Tell them what I told you. And what did he tell his disciples? What did he tell even those that rejected him in Nazareth? He told them this, that he has been anointed to preach these good tidings. That he's been sent to heal the broken. We don't have the answers. We look at the world and it is broken. We do not have all the answers. But we do know, by our own life experience, don't we, that if these broken people come to Christ Jesus as we have, they will be healed. They will receive the Spirit of Christ on them as well. They will be set free. They will no longer be in prison. We can attest to that, can't we? We are free. And I love this term, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That atonement promise out there, isn't it? The year of Jubilee. The time of Jubilee. The kingdom of Jubilee. We are here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But Jesus warns us. He says, no prophet is accepted in his own country. So we have to be prepared for that. As we prepare for that, this is our mission. To preach the good news. Every single one of us, at any moment that we have, an opportunity to, to share and teach as many as we can pin down. Let's get to work.